Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. I was talking to a past podcast guest, and she said, you have got to talk to my neighbor. Um, And that's how the best stories come about. And so I went to meet with this woman named Erin Cobb, who grew up around here. And Erin Cobb was in the news, and it was not a good thing, um, a number of years ago, because she was a Marine in Iraq who survived, got out of Iraq, only to be shot twice in the head by her own husband, who was also uh, a veteran of Iraq. And he then took his own life. And you won't really understand and appreciate that story in as much as anyone could until you meet and get to know Aaron Cobb and how she still loves her fellow Marines, still has a great deal of love and respect for the Marine Corps, and what kind of an incredible story she is. And she she just lays it out flat. So first I want you to hear the backstory of a sorority girl at App State who became a member of the Marine Corps. And that journey in itself to become a one of the first female Marines, especially to be sent overseas to a combat zone, is well worth hearing. So we're going to start there, and then next week, something I've never done before, a second part, which is walking you through the entire story of how her marriage fell apart, how her husband came became increasingly jealous, and then how he stalked her, shot her, and then shot himself. Uh, a terrible tragedy, but out of which emerges this woman who is just has a love of life and an appreciation of it and a sense of values and sort of a clear-eyed view of herself, owning her own stuff that is it's just breathtaking. It's just refreshing. Um, I think you'll kind of fall in love with her as I did. It's it's hard not to meet Aaron Cobb and have a little bit of a crush. I mean, she's just so full of life. Um, Aaron Cobb. The Marine Corps has always had a problem with how to integrate females into things in a positive and a constructive way. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there, I'm Stuart Watson, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. This is, this is a, a privilege 
Sometimes it's just a privilege to bear witness and to hear the story of another human being and emerge with so much respect for her. I've already spoken too much. Without further ado, Aaron Cobb. Where were you born? Oh, I was born in the backwoods of nowhere, Salisbury, North Carolina, but outside of there. Um, so only about 40 miles from here, but very rural, um, very conservative, which is hilarious for the kind of person I am now. But my mom is a transplant from, well, from Michigan, but she mostly grew up outside the United States. And my dad is very much a local to the area, um, but surprisingly very liberal for a, uh, from a person from nowhere in the South and poorly educated. But yeah, so went to the smallest, smallest elementary school. There was, um, when I say predominantly white, I say there was not a, a person who was not white in my elementary school till I think I was in the fourth grade. Um, but very, very like small, close-knit, conservative, you know, community. And it's, I mean, it's wild because I've moved like 40 miles. Was there a name for this town? So it's kind of out, it's in between Faith and China Grove. So that didn't really have a name. Um, but I went to Boston Heights Elementary School, which is still there. And my dad actually went to elementary school there as well, which is kind of weird. My principal was a seventh grade teacher. So I went to go live with my mom. I moved to Concord. Uh, which was not a huge, much bigger now, um, but a very, it was just such a, like, a great and different experience. I finally got to play, that's when I started playing organized sports. You know, once Our I found, sport. so basketball first and then soccer. And I'm, I'm a naturally very athletic person and that, which is great because I started playing sports later than everybody else. I didn't start playing basketball till the fifth grade and I was, you know, I turned out to be pretty good at it wasn't going to go to college and play, but I played, you know, I played elementary school, middle school, high school, started, played AAU basketball. But when I found soccer, I mean, soccer was like the real love for me. And I started playing in middle school, I think. And we were the first all-girls soccer team in Cabarrus County. That's ages me, but it's the truth. And I also knew if I was, there was a slight chance that I could have probably played soccer at a small school in college. And I talked to a coach at Catawba and I, I said, That's, I don't want that college experience. I'm not gonna go to like a 1200 person school just so I can play a sport where I have to get up at five o'clock in the morning. I'm going to college, I'm gonna drink, I'm gonna party, I'm gonna live my like wild, crazy life. So that's what I did. I went to Appalachian State, um, which now- it's a little party. Oh yeah, it was definitely a party school, but then it was sort of a throwaway school. Not that it wasn't super hard to get into at the time. Our football team was not beating Michigan. Boone is this beautiful, you know, sort of sleepy town. It's much bigger now, but in the mountains. And it was such a great Zen place for me because I always had wild energy. I now know as an adult, it's also ADHD, but um, you know, it was like this kind of sleepy town, but it was also super fun. And you know, I absolutely, I mean, Boone is beautiful. So after my freshman year, you know, I was missing something because I've been an athlete and I played sports and I'd pledged a sorority. So I've, I know this about myself. Like I need, I need big 
family oriented things. That's what sports are. You know, they're your family. I've, but I needed that. I needed that sense of community. I needed that. I don't know if it's an only child thing or just a, an errand thing. Um, but pledge of sorority. And then, but I still just felt like I needed to be part of something bigger. And there, and I'd almost joined the Marine Corps Reserves my junior year in high school. I don't know if they still do that, but the rec recruiters from all branches of service came to our cafeteria at lunch and, and they would talk. And of course, number one, the Marines have the best, you know, they have the best uniform, but they always have the best talkers. And at the time, he's, he's retired now. He's, a, he's retired as a warrant officer, but uh, Staff Sergeant Nicodemus, first of all, great name. Um, just one of these kind of good at talking shit type of guys. And I mean, they have the best sales tactic of all of them. They know how to do it. They recruit the right guys to be recruiters. And he's, I mean, I still talk to him to this day. I, I talked to him and, you know, it was one of those things. I knew that I wasn't, I was going to go to college. So it was going to be the reserve route. Um, and it, I, I just had this fire in me. It was something that I felt like I needed to do. And I'm sure it was internalized from my grandparents, from my dad, from, from everything else. But I always, you know, it was always wanting to be part of something bigger than yourself. That was always this was important. This post 9-11. Pre-9-11. pre-9-11. Yeah, pre-9-11. So, so I was all set up to go in the reserves or between high school and my freshman year of college. And I called my mom from the recruiter's office. And so I said, Mom, I need you to come down here with your divorce declaration so that she could sign, because I was 17, so she could sign me up. And my mom said, oh, I got you. I'll be there. Um, I'll be there. And she came in, and she threw down, and she threw down the gauntlet with, with Staff Sergeant Nicodemus. She's like, I'm not buying your bullshit. She said, this is not the path for my daughter. I'm not signing this. And kind of, she put her foot down, which my... We did not have that kind of relationship about anything. My mom is not, not that my mom's a soft person, but she's very go with the flow. She's, and you did what or said what? And at, I was still 17, and normally that would be something I would have bucked against, but I think recognizing that my mom took such a strong stand against it, I said, okay, well, let me think about this. And there was nothing I could do about it. I was 17. And I kept in contact, I kept in contact with, with those, that set of recruiters, I mean, I would go by their office and bullshit and bring them food, and I actually really liked them, and I enjoyed their energy uh, because, you know, sort of that alpha macho, like, bullshit thing I always thought was hilarious. I had no problem navigating and, you know, kind of in that world. I even helped my, the guy I was standing in high school, he, if, if he were here, he would argue and say that he did it on its own, but I know I pushed him to go meet with Staff Sergeant Nicodemus, and he joined... He went enlisted in the Marine Corps and left uh, right after high school. But I kept in contact with those guys. And so I, I went to my freshman year of college and it was easy. I made the Dean's List both semesters. And if something's easy for me, it's, it's not good. I, I, I now know I'm the type of person is I need to continue to challenge myself because if I get bored, I get lazy. And boot camp is? Paris Island, baby. Oh yeah, still is. Yep. Um, I don't know, uncle went there. Fourth Battalion, it's the only place, I, I don't know if it's gonna change now, but all female recruits, no matter where they are from in the world, went to Paris Island. Males, it was east of the Mississippi, go to Paris Island, west of the Mississippi, go to San Diego. Are all the women together? Yes, so they're changing it now, but, but back then, it was the only branch of service, and 
the U.S. military where women train completely separately. For me, I, I believe that in the Marine Corps, having separate training for women is important. It is so predominantly male. You know, at the time it was basically like 95% male, 5% female. Boot camp is so grueling and the Marine Corps is so good and has such a formula to break you down, build you up the way they are. They are by far the best at it, instilling pride, really getting you to to buy into, you know, their ethos and and what they what they stand for, which is amazing because you know the Marine Corps they talking first in first out shittiest equipment you know the adapt and overcome they really have an amazing formula for that and training with and this isn't about like men versus women it just is such a grueling hard thing and I women you know I'm generalizing but even though even the drill instructors will tell you the way that you like break down women versus men and to get the reaction that they want is just very different. I, women tend to, first of all, I think they're going to band together more quickly and you don't, first of all, you don't have to physically intimidate them in the same way that you do men. They're not, they're far less likely to react violently. Um, in that circumstance, they're, they're going to get on board more easily it doesn't take i don't think it takes a level of like humiliation to break down you know ego and pride in the same way and women are so strong together and and they form bonds and i think and i'm sure cooperation people, not competition I, yes You're especially as a team. especially if there are no men around and that's you know we could get on a whole conversation about all that and and how that impacts them and from modern misogyny and how you know human societies have developed and how you know we're really supposed to be a communal group raising kids together and then scarcity of resources cause people to be you know in a, a monogamous relationship where you only worry about your partner and you're not worrying about the community or whatever depending on what people think about that we could go all that but i just think that women are stronger together and we're great when we're together and Building that team uh, relationship is really, really important. The female drill instructors, um, amazing, like the most amazing. It's just so incredible to watch them work, especially because, you know, most women are like so small. And you look at this compact, like five, four. Not an ounce of fat. Not an ounce of fat, but tiny human woman that is so full of energy and poise and it is, it's just, it was just so incredible. And still getting your face. Oh, meanest, nastiest, <laughs> most hateful, all of that. They are not soft. They are not kind. Um, it's just so impressive to watch I'm that. I'm not your mama. I'm not your sister. Oh, and I am not your friend. Um, <laughs> no. Oh, and I would like to say that, you know, I, I laugh. I look back at myself and, you know how arrogant and I was at 20 years old and how I always thought I was right. But it was so, it was a good dose of humility for me, which I have, I think, I think everyone at, between 18 or 20 should either have to serve in the military, 
join the Peace Corps, join AmeriCorps for a year or two, I think you should have to have a level of service. And it doesn't have to be in the military. The Marine Corps changed so many things for me in that. So grew up predominantly white area, high, you know, elementary school, even high school, we were pr probably 90, 92% white at the time. Upper middle class too. So very insular. I go to college, I go to Appalachian State, predominantly white. Um, and, and then you joined the Marine Corps. Well, and then I joined the Marine Corps and it was, you know, look, my parents are super open-minded. They're, you know, not a racist bone in any of their bodies. It's, it's nothing like that. But there's a difference between having that ideal and having no real exposure to people of even of different cultures, even of different religions. I don't think I met a Jewish person until I went to college, just by virtue of where I lived. It was white, Protestant, upper middle class experience. And so then I joined the Marine Corps, and, you know, and after you get through boot camp um, and combat training, I'm out in California going to my MOS school, 20 years old, around people, not only different parts of the country, but different parts of the world. That's how a lot of people get citizenship. I don't think people realize that is people can join the armed forces and that's how they get citizenship for them and their family. I mean, we have a ton of people from the Philippines, obviously, Eastern European, a lot of people from the Caribbean, you know, people from different countries in Africa that don't, that don't even speak English. So super cool. But, you know, and other people, that was their way out of, it was their way out of, you know, poverty. Some, it was their way out of, you know, if you, you get in a lot of trouble, you have two choices. You can go to jail or you can go to the military. You know, you get stripped down to your basic level. I will say, though, naive, sweet 20-year-old Aaron, I believed in the, you know, the unbroken band of brothers and this, you know, we were there for a higher purpose. And, and every organization is made up of human beings and we're all fallible and, you know, we're not perfect. But, you know, you're naive and you're young. So then I check in for combat training. So you have your 14-day boot leave. I went home. I went up to college, saw my friends, got drunk, you know, lived that experience. And then I had to go back, you know, go back and put my uniform on again. And what was really interesting is so you went from a 100% basically female environment and then you go to combat training where you're mixed. That's when you get your first experience of, of you know, mixing. My bad experiences were not with other Marines that were going through, that were other like students going through combat training. It was with the instructors. I'm 20 years old and you have instructors that are corporals and sergeants that are 22. They're really not much older than you. They're sort of still kids themselves. You know, you start, there's some of the misogynistic bullshit. And, you know, even when I was in boot camp, there was, you had a, one of the instructors on the firing range who was it made inappropriate had inappropriate comments and I don't know letters were exchanged or what was happening and like that's when you start feeling like when the mixing starts being human beings with attraction or your own shit that you're bringing to the table and female marines are you're almost like a commodity you're so rare and you're in these you know super you know stressful experiences and you have 18 to 24 year olds that are full of hormones and all the other things that, that go on and it's just a difficult and there's a, a lack of maturity all the way around just that was kind of a tough pill to swallow just i guess probably recognize some that they were human beings but also that one you know this wasn't 
So you go to college, right? And males and females mix, they hook up, they drink, they're friends or whatever. And there's, there's never a lot, you don't look at the difference between, that there's some difference, this fundamental difference between, you know, men and women. And maybe it's because we're separated whenever we train in the beginning or the brain together, but the Marine Corps has always had a problem with how to integrate females into things in a, a, a positive and a constructive way. Because there's so few of us, they, it's like they, they don't necessarily know what to do with us. And you have some, you know, antiquated versions that may be different now, but there were, there were a few types of guys, the men who didn't think we belonged there at all. And there were some legitimately amazing guys. Like, I don't want to paint them all in a bad picture. You know, I'm lucky I was never sexually assaulted. I was definitely in some situations that were not, not great or not scary, but there, you learn a level of, I don't know, awareness. And I learned it then that I never, that I never felt before. And now, you know, it was really disheartening for me. So through 2003, I went back to school. So for my fall semester into 2003, um, 2004 is when the insurgency started in Iraq and things were ramping up. And so I, I joined my unit in Greensboro and then it gets leaked in a Greensboro paper that our unit is going to be deployed to Iraq and we didn't hear it from you know our actual unit it got leaked and so then the calls start and you start freaking out and you're like oh what are we going to do and I just knew it I'm like shit it's going to be me I'm going to get deployed and I had a pretty serious boyfriend at the time but the relationship was kind of rough and patchy I found out he cheated on me a lot long before I was getting mobilized and I was kind of like, I don't have the emotional capacity to deal with the breakup and we'll just kind of see what happens. Um, through the appointment, after the, like I was more focused on getting there and not dying than anything else. And then we go to Camp Lejeune and that's where they kind of separate us out. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol. Use as directed and keep out of reach of children. They were all reserve units from up and down the East Coast. And we get assigned with a group from, um, from New York. And it was so, first of all, like hilarious culture shock in between. But the guys used to joke that in their squad bay, they had the Mason-Dixon line and all the Southern guys lived on one end and all the Northern guys lived on the other. And there was one female, um, Catherine O'Connor, but those guys, it was amazing. So fun. We all got like really close. Of course, so we're training and then we're going out and we're, you know, drinking every night and having the best time. And it was, they would give us lessons on the boroughs and telling us all things New York and calling us hillbillies. And it was absolutely just amazing. The way we did it is we flew it was a commercial airline, but like a off-brand commercial airline. We load up, you have all these Marines, all our gear, all our shit, have our rifles, get on your 
scared to death, even though everybody's trying to act really cool and tough. And I got stuck in between two guys I didn't know. And I look back and two of the guys from my unit in Greensboro were behind me who I knew really well, um, Grubb and Medlin. And I asked the guys, I'm like, look, can you please switch with me so I can sit with them? And they were super nice. And I, I tell you, this cemented my friendship with both of them, but especially with Grubb. Because the cool thing is, if I sat in the middle, we could sleep all over each other. And, you know, there was no weird macho guys around it. And I knew that I was safe. So you fly in. You know a normal ascent and descent in an airline. Well, that's not how you come into a place that's near a war zone. So you're basically like, you go from altitude to landing very, very quickly. And as soon as they like stop on the runway, they're like, grab your shit and get off. And so, because you're a target. And so, you know, that's like... You've been laughing and joking and eating on the plane, and it's it's go time, and it's dark. You know, it's it's late at night, and so as you're there, you know, you're grabbing your shit. You know, you grab your packs. They worry about the rest of your stuff. You grab your rifle, and you you know you're off the plane. And as you're going to get on the buses, they start throwing you know giving you rounds because you you're not going to fly with you know with ammo. They give you your rounds, and we're all like, uh, we packed our magazines. <laughs> In our in our cargo, um, because that's I, I swear that's where they told us to pack it. So we're there with pockets full of bullets because we don't have our magazines, which is great. And you're like, what? Is, what have I gotten myself into? And you're like, you know, you're just freaking out. And they get you on these buses and you close the curtains. They're like, don't open the curtains. And so you're convoying to um, to your base camp in Kuwait. And of course, we're on the road for 20 minutes, and one of our one of our buses has a mechanical issue. And so you're there, basically on the side of the road, and they can't just—they're like they can't make it obvious that we're there, but you can't have security. So they literally have people. They're like, who? Number one, who has magazines? So all those people raise their hands, and they had they call them guardians. You know, they had people kind of out in the desert on the side of the road doing perimeter. Uh, doing the perimeter and doing security just to make sure and um, of course in true Aaron style we're sitting there on the bus for 15 minutes I'm like I have to pee like I have to pee right now this is do not pass go you cannot wait and so they they didn't have bathrooms on the bus and I'm like shit so I grab I grab Madeline and grub I was like boys I'm like I gotta pee they're like we got you girl we'll stand guard and uh, so I had to go kind of to the side of the bus one you know, so my ass isn't out and, you know, headlights in Kuwait, which for, would be problematic for a couple of reasons. But I had the two guys there, like, standing guard so I could pee on the side of the road. I'm like, well, here I am. Um, and I, I told those two, but especially... They really are like your brother. I told them. We are still friends this day, and I tell them, I'm like, you solidified our friendship in that moment. And Grub... I adore him. He's a good old boy from Lexington, North Carolina. At the time, like definitely bigger, a little chubby, um, but sweet, amazing. Uh, he's a little bit younger than him. He was in college too, but like, like good old sweet guy. And uh, so, so, and we, you know, are maintained a friendship. He's amazing. He lives in Nashville with his wife and his daughter. But we, so that was that. We finally get to Kuwait. And where we were in Kuwait, it is that sand that you see in the movies. Like the very thick, hard to walk in sand. And you're there until you get to your next jump point, you know, where you're going next. And one, you're scared, but you know Kuwait's relatively safe, but it's also really weird. And 
you're kind of like, holy shit, like this is getting real. And we land in Al-Assad and Al-Assad is a huge air base near the Syrian border. Um, and that, so when I was there, that was when the insurgency, they'd done the big push into Fallujah the year before. Um, you know, all the wild stories from Fallujah and all the deaths and all the, you know, the horrible things. And they were so sort of trying to push the insurgents back through the Syrian border and they were all around where we were. Al-Assad was the base point slash supply point slash everything point for everything that was going on there. So Hit and Haditha and Al-Qaim and um, so everything that was going on there. We land kind of like old shit and what made me laugh is Al-Assad looks just like 29 Palms. I'm like, I might be okay. We, we could be in California. Um, it, you know, there's even a place where there was a wadi, which is a dried up riverbed where they had palm trees. I'm like, we're in Al-Assad, this is fine. And you know, we get there, it's February, it's cold. And as soon as we, and so because it's so remote and it's huge, and you know, we had, so the whole base was run by the Marines at that time, but we had a whole regiment that was out on another side. We had all kinds of multinational forces that were based out there. It was just a really big, interesting base. But we get there and, you know, we were taking mortar fire like pretty frequently. And so that's like, oh shit, um, people really are. Because, you know, I, so I was in communication. So obviously one at the time, like women couldn't be grunts and you know, technically like women couldn't be in combat roles, but as everybody figured out and you know, the way wars are now, it's, you're not standing online. I mean, you have some people going through cities and kicking down doors, but the supply people are who they were targeting. You know, you're the ones that are driving out what everybody needs to the bases. So anyway, we're getting mortared, you know, well, to me, it seemed like frequently, cause you know, I'd never been around people trying to bomb me in my life. Um, so pretty scary. Obviously, they hit the fuel farm, so we had a big fuel farm that was there. The fuel farm got hit, and there was, you know, I don't know, we had only been there. Big boom. Big boom, burned for a long time. Also very, you know, very scary, but, and luckily, I don't think anyone, I think maybe people got hurt, but no one died. Um, but also at that time, they hadn't, it was when they hadn't up-armored all the vehicles. And so we'd been there a couple weeks, and, you know, they were doing a supply run and hit an IED and no one died, but people got seriously, seriously injured. And it, it was because the, all the vehicles hadn't been up armored yet, but the armor was there. And I remember it was a whole, it was a whole big thing. Our first Sergeant Parisi, who unfortunately, and this is going to be a lot of things to my stories, found out within the last year committed suicide. Amazing guy, but he was the first, uh, the first sergeant there and you know throwing the bloody camis on the guy he was relieving his desk like what the fuck is this you know you have a job we have the stuff here and now i have someone that i've got to send home we you know we don't know what's going to happen for the rest of their lives so that was kind of the big theme there this was also the time where like they were recalling um people you know people were getting camis in the mail because contracts are typically four by four or six by two. So four by four means active duty for four years and four years on inactive reserves and uh, reserve contracts are usually six by two. So six years, um, you, you drill and you do your one week in a month and then two years where you're on inactive reserves where you could be called back at any time, which had never happened in the history until now. 
So this was when they didn't have enough, or you know, they didn't have enough savvy plates for vests. They didn't, especially in the Marine Corps, you know, where everybody didn't have all the things that they needed. So we were there stripping and up armoring vehicles. And, you know, especially in the first part, it was really rough. I mean, people were getting injured. IEDs were huge. And that's basically, I mean, that's how the fight was. You know, supply runs hit IEDs. Uh, and so that was kind of the initial experience there. And, you know, you go from living a wild college life to, you know, making this, this very fundamental shift. And so... Literally a sorority girl. A sorority girl to... To running around and combat marine. Yeah, I used to tell them I would stay in longer if they just let me wear earrings and pink, and they would just tell me to shut up. I'm like, "Cobb, get out of here. We don't want to hear what you have to say. You're ridiculous." Um, yeah. So, but IEDs were a huge thing, and which kind of so while I was there, um, you know, you're trying to find your footing. You're trying to figure out. You're trying to make connections and, and do what you do. You know, and I'm the kind of person where. I'll find the fun anywhere that I go. And, uh, and you know, I, I can obviously be serious whenever I want to be, but I also don't take things that seriously. So anyway, you're, you're, you're having fun. You're working hard. I was a, what they call a wireman. The job doesn't even exist anymore, but we made sure phones work. We ran, you know, we ran lines. We dug cables. It's basically a working party filled sandbags, which was great for you know me I like to work out so I was like well this is my job is working out every day it's dirty it's gross but you know it was fine um but while I was there so that is actually where I met my ex-husband and you know speaking of IEDs he was an EOD tech and so you know those are the guys hurt locker disarm roadside bombs and IED so basically a big suit. uh yeah but what people don't realize about all the suit protects against is blast over pressure it's not going to it's not going to protect against shrapnel. So a lot of times they typically try to use a robot, but a lot of times, like by the time they figure out that they probably need the suit, it's too late and they're standing over something and they're just basically pulling wires and hoping that someone isn't setting off the remote, um, the remote to blow up the device. But, you know, when it, especially later when it came to our relationship, I think, I allowed him much more space and leniency to a fault that it was his friends all the time that were getting killed. He was the one in the much more dangerous situation. His, the impact on him, you know, I allowed for the impact on him and his experience and his mental health to, for excuses, or, but to be kind of more important than mine. What if any lessons or testimony might you give to the military about uh, PTSD after witnessing what you've witnessed oh. and experiencing what you've experienced? Oh, for sure. Oh, that's easy. Well, one, they at least acknowledge it because it wasn't even a thing whenever I left. You have to give people the room and the support that they need and, you know, the, the simple stuff take away the stigma. The hardest thing about being in the military is well, the mentality of the military is you can never show weakness and you always are supposed to be at 100% and you have to always be on your game and you have to give people space, predominantly men space, to have those emotions and to show vulnerability to be able to get treatment because you can't do treatment without opening yourself up to that. And I don't know if that, 
I don't know how that space fits in there, but it needs to. Has anyone from the military asked you about your experience and to try to debrief? Oh, absolutely. I've had multiple guys reach out to me. What's really interesting is, you know, on Facebook, I've had multiple of them reach out to me. One or two, uh, one specifically who said that he was really struggling and was contemplating suicide. And he read about my story and how I was, you know, about what happened to me and how I'm living my life being happy and have a career. And he said, I looked at that and that, that changed my entire mindset. Because I look at what you went through and, you know, mine is not as bad as this, which I think, you know, is an interesting way. But yeah, I mean, I'm, look, I love that that can help people. And, and, you know, multiple people have reached out and said that to me. We're coming up on Veterans Day. Yep. How do you celebrate? So I, was, I reach out to all my buddies. And Veterans Day is always, and I don't think this is a coincidence, very near the Marine Corps birthday. And so if I'm around any of, if I can be around any of the guys that I was in service with, you know, uh, grab a drink, buy a beer, um, appreciate what we did, celebrate, you know, the service that we're able to give while acknowledging all the, all the, you know, nonsense around it. But yeah, drink a beer, thank my buddies, you know, laugh about all the dumb stories that we had. If you had a 17-year-old daughter, would you sign the papers for her, for the Marine Corps? No, I, I would tell her to go to college and let her be an officer in the Navy or the Air Force. There's more opportunity, and it's not as hard. Aaron Cobb, you're amazing. Thank you. You're an amazing person. This was a great privilege. This was a huge privilege on my part. So thank you for your time. Oh, you're welcome. And as we've said, next week on a very special second part two of this, you'll hear Erin walk through the whole history of herself, her husband, how he became her ex-husband, their relationship, the good, bad, and the ugly, how she was shot, and most importantly, how she came back. Not only the physical therapy, but the psychological rebirth, the psychological therapy. And she is so strong. If ever there was a portrait of resilience, um, it is this person, this human. And so you'll want to check out next week's podcast. Um, my father served in the South Pacific. My dad, my adopted dad, served in the South Pacific. Um, my cousin lost his life in Vietnam. And I have, of course, lots of other family members who have served in the military, um, brother-in-law, etc. And so on this day before Veterans Day, uh, a shout out and a huge amount of respect to all the veterans out there. And Erin Cobb would be the first to say um, that she has just a huge love and respect for her fellow veterans. So to all of you out there, my friends and my family, um, congratulations, uh, my thanks, my gratitude for your service and for every veteran's service to this country. Thanks so much.
In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. Many, many thanks to everyone who has supported this podcast and all my endeavors from manlistening.com to In Her Words to the two books uh, to now my video ventures uh, going on at voicelocket.com. Working in all these media, thank you so very much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.